and welcome back to the Argus podcast. My name is Christian Fuller and this week we are joined by politician Lloyd Russell Moyle. As all MPs are at the moment, the Kemp Town representative is rather busy, so apologies for any background noise during this episode. But let's get right into it. Hello, Lloyd, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. A lot of people move to Brighton and Hove for a variety of reasons, but you were born and raised here, is that right? Well, I was born in the county hospital opposite where I live now. From my bedroom window, I can see, see the ward in which I was born. And I was raised in Lewis, uh, mainly, where I went to the local primary school in Lewis, Priory Secondary School, and then I went to the technical college called uh, Lewis Tertiary College afterwards. What was growing up in, in Sussex like for you? Oh, well, I am very much, I think, probably a creature of Sussex, particularly of East Sussex and Lewis and nonconformism and the idea that you, were, you are a free mind and you won't be drugged by other people telling you what to do, the Sussex motto, um, after all. And uh, it was a beautiful and is a beautiful place, I think, to grow up. You have the lights of Brighton. You have the beautiful cliffs of Saltdean and Peacehaven port in New Haven to get down to France and you have the historic kind of buildings but also the bonfire and the, the radical tradition of the Hedgestrong Club in Lewis and, and I felt very much and I do feel very much at home with all of those. You mentioned your schooling there a little bit but I was just wondering whether it was how early your interest in politics started was it uh, I think a lot of people get interested at university level or, or was it for you was it before that? So my family were political but not party political it was about the community is about the community for me. I remember one of my first political acts in that sense, going door to door, getting petitions to save Pell's Pool, which was about to be shut by Lewis District Council at the time. They were going to bulldoze over. Um, unfortunately, we didn't manage to save the Sussex Council bulldozing over the swimming pool in peace. A piece of public vandalism they did to a year and a half ago now. But uh, putting that aside, that was one of the first acts that I did in Clean up the streets. I think there are the newspaper clippings from the Argus and Sussex Express of me as a child getting people to clean up their mess, that kind of thing. But those were always things that were important. And I grew up with an idea of service that you wanted something to improve, you to roll up your sleeves and help do it yourself, get other people to do it with you, um, and you improve things for everyone. And if you didn't do that, you can't complain. And so, so to me, that is the essence of politics. Politics is about improving our lives, improving the things around us, and, and rolling up our sleeves and saying, well, I don't like it, so I'm going to do something about it. And uh, it was only in later years that I became more interested in party politics. I mean, Lewis is a liberal conservative uh, town, so at secondary school, um, it was interesting to talk to liberals and conservatives always. And there were plenty of those people around town, whether it be Norman Baker or whether it be Conservative Association. Uh, but I joined uh, the Cooperative Party because I had been in the Woodcraft Vote, which is a socialist uh, scouting and youth work organisation. Operates in Brighton very heavily still to this day. And that believed in cooperation. It was funded by the Co-op. And the Cooperative Party have a political party in Parliament, and I am a cooperative party member of Parliament. I then joined the Labour Party after joining the Co-op Party because I realised that they have a coalition together, a historic one for the last 100 years, but the Co-op Party and the Labour Party 
are two sides of the same coin. You kind of mentioned mentalities there growing up and things, but was there a specific moment that made you go, I want to be a politician? No, I've always been gobby, always spoken out. I can remember even at primary school, the head teacher at the time, new head teacher we had, painted some lines on the playground that I thought looked ugly. He painted them all over the, um, the nice brick wall that we had. It was for lining up at lunchtime. I thought he'd done it in an unpleasant way. Doesn't make much difference one way or another now. But I remember I knocked on his door and I said it was unpleasant. He could have done it in a way that was keeping to the nice heritage setting and that he should be ashamed of himself. And I got him to come down to the playground to have a look at what the alternatives could have been. So I'd always been, probably the teachers would have said a pain in the arse, but I was always willing to speak up if I thought that there was something not quite right. So there's not one moment, but there are many moments where I thought, well, that's what I quite like to do, making sure that, that if there is something to be said and if there is something to improve, be improved, we can do that. Um, and politics, therefore, is the natural solution to uh, a natural home for that. Am I right in thinking that you were a city councillor prior to being an MP as well? I was very briefly uh, a councillor for Brighton and Hove in the ward of East Brighton, which covers Whitehall, Bristol State, Craven Vale, and part of Kemp Town Village where I live. And I was also, of course, chair of the city party for a year before that. And had stood in Parliament before for Parliament before that as well in 2015. I wasn't so lucky that time. So, so I have done a number of political kind of slots. I really enjoyed being a councillor actually, and I stopped doing it. I would have continued doing both. Many people do in other scenarios, but I just couldn't commit to enough time to get to the council meeting. But I actually think that it links you to the community and it links you to the council. The job of a councillor and the job of an MP. It's fundamentally the same, but at a different level. I think as a councillor, you can have to make more of a difference. And that is to stop the bureaucrats, the people that would rule our lives, little pen pushers, and whether it be in the council or whether it be in the civil service, um, and to say to them, no, we need a reality check on you. We need to make sure that you're not just going ahead and doing things that suit you, but actually suit the population and the public. And when they get things wrong, which everyone, there's no slight on the individuals. These people are great people that work there. But every individual gets things wrong. And you are the person to check them and say, actually, you've got, not only have I set the policy, but you've got this one wrong. And the common sense is, yes, you need to fill that pothole in. Come on, let's do it. Or the common sense is that we need a new fence here or we need some new streetlights here. Let's do it. Or his perspective, we try and do that on things ranging from immigration to benefits. We help people out. And to me, that's one of the most rewarding part of being an MP and a councillor. And becoming an MP, was that a moment you kind of always dreamed of and mission complete? Or I'm assuming that was more just the beginning for you? I had wanted to be an MP for a little while uh, by that time. But I did genuinely not think it would come so quickly. I thought that I would have a few years at least as a councillor, a few more years. Uh, working at the university, I was at the time covering um, uh, the union role for administrating the Lecturers and Professors Union, UCU. And I thought, well, I was quite happy and content doing that and plodding along with it. Uh, and so the election came along and it was a chance to get rid of a Conservative in the constituency. I was a councillor, the chair of the party. I knew the area. I campaigned in 2015 in the area for our candidate. And I thought, actually, we could win this. There's a real tide and feeling in Kemp Town that we must and so I put my name forward and I was selected and the rest is history as they say. Now is there more that I want to do? Of course 
I never had desires really to be prime minister, but I do think there are really good things that you can do in government and uh, make sure that we improve the lives of people. And that's our desire. That's where we need to go next. I'm really very unhappy with what this government is doing for this country. That kind of leads me on. It's a very broad question, but what's it like being a politician in today's world? It can be exhilarating sometimes and fascinating. And I was in Prime Minister's question yesterday when all the, the stuff was hitting at the fan uh, and you feel like the forest is on the rocks. And at the same time, it can be awfully depressing. Now, Brighton and Hove did not vote for this kind of nasty government that we have. One that is, I mean, it is bringing in a law to allow the Home Secretary, without even informing individuals, to strip them of their citizenship if they happen to have any heritage out of Britain. Well, who will that affect? It won't affect me, really. I mean, I have no heritage links apart from, uh, you know, kind of Britain, really. You know, my, my grandparents were on one side were German, but they gave them, they gave their German citizenship up because of the war. So, you know, that, that really, uh, I would not be stripped. Who would be stripped would be people of colour, ethnic minorities, immigrants. This was the manifesto pledges of the National Front and the British National Party for years and years and years, and the Conservatives have implemented it. It's their wet dream of fascist and right-wing xenophobes. Um, they are doing the same with, of course, the right to protest that they're trying to restrict and stop with the Kill the Bill protests fighting back against that and, and good on them. But they are doing some awfully awful things in terms of our rights and civil liberties. And at the same time, we see the cost of living going up and people really being abandoned. And it is dreadfully depressing when you know that we haven't got the numbers to stop it, where you are just shouting in the wind and no one can hear you. And that's what it feels like sometimes when you're here in Westminster. And what gives me the zeal to continue is when you get back to Brighton and people have heard you and people have known that your voice has made a difference, even if it's just to give them steel that there is a fight and that there is an alternative to nastiness. And that alternative is Labour. Going back in time, you've been very vocal in the past uh, in your opposition to Brexit throughout your time as an MP and um, even Little Flair on Westminster Bridge under the banner Love Socialism, Hate Brexit, I think it was. Do you still feel as passionately about Brexit now as you did then? And in a society where kind of protesting is ever present, would you encourage that sort of behaviour now? Well, one needs to protest for a point. At that point, we felt that there were things that could be done and pressure could be put on. And the slogan was partly putting pressure on socialists that were maybe um, dismissive that you could be anti-Brexit and the Benite wing of the party, uh, which I broadly agree with, but not on Europe. Would I recommend people go out protesting about Brexit now? Well, no, it's gone. That issue is gone. We have Brexited. There are still things that we should and could be doing. Part of our cost of living squeeze is because of Brexit, but not entirely. Uh, a part of the problems that we see in trade is about Brexit, but not entirely. And there are choices that we could make. And we now see that the government is trying to remove us from human rights accords that were not part of Brexit, but uh, they always promised that they would stay in. And we said there was a danger. The EU underpinned those things. The EU, for example, set who we could sell our arms to so that we didn't sell them to people that could then turn them against Britain and British interests. The government last month weakened the arms arrangement so they now 
we are weaker than the rest of Europe, so they can sell them to their friends in Russia and Saudi Arabia. And we know this government has got real horrible friends around the world that have malign and nasty interests against Britain, particularly Russia, but Saudi Arabia as well. And so there's real dangers of leaving the European Union, but we can't necessarily rejoin immediately. But what we can do is fight uh, and campaign to ensure that the high standards that we have are maintained and we innovate and improve them and go further. And we can do that. Uh, um, and that's what Labour's policy is now because we fought and I did everything I can, Kemp Town being a Remain seat, me being elected as a Remainer, I did everything I can to ensure that we have the softest of Brexits or we put the options back to the people. And all those options that we tried to arrange, we didn't manage to get it over the line. And we are where we are now. We can't rewrite history. Talking about the things you, you did do, if, if I may, you quite sort of famously seized the mace uh, in the Commons. Had you always intended to do that? Was that a spur of the moment? Oh, that's a total spur of the moment thing. I, I, I'm known about it. British democracy was created by doing that. So Oliver Cromwell lifted the mace and said, this house is rotten, it is in the pocket of the king, and it is not independent and for the people. And that, of course, caused the uh, English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution, um, where we created parliamentary democracy, the oldest and longest functioning parliamentary democracy in the world, although there's some debates about its functionality. Um, uh, under this government, but it's always existed and people have done it about every 10 years. I'm not even the last person to have lifted the mace, actually. You know, there's someone who's done it since me already. So, so it is done not, um, it is not unique to do it, but it is done not when you disagree with a policy, but when you fundamentally disagree with the process in which the government is going about something or which the House is following, and you think the House has become rotten or broken. And in this case, Theresa May was refusing to allow us to have votes, was refusing to allow the Commons to decide whether what kind of Brexit we wanted, she was refusing to honour the votes that we had. And, uh, and, and if you remember, they then, uh, latterly, uh, Parliament was even prorogued, and that was illegal. And we went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found that the government was illegal. So can you do it again? No. I think you can only do it once in your career. And would I do it again? Probably not. Uh, and I didn't plan it but at that moment, because all those illegal things and wrong things were happening. I was fuming and I felt like I was there standing in front of it. And I thought, well, I might as well just do this. I lifted it up, gave it to the, uh, the, the, the security guard. And that form of protest is the age old one of which founded British democracy. If you don't mind, I'd love to hear your views on sexuality, as I know you were born in Brighton and you represent Kemp Town. Was that a conscious decision, just its links with the LGBTQ plus community, or is it just the fact that you live there? Kemp Town is, is a very diverse seat in terms of sexuality, but in terms of, um, uh, in, in terms of economic um, background as well, from Kemp Town to Woodingdean and Rottingdean and Sussex Square and some of those houses that are small flats and other ones that hold houses still and multi-million pound properties. Uh, that's what I love about Kent Town. I always knew that there are only a few places in this country that I would ever be able to or want to stand for Parliament in. Um, a number of those places are in Sussex, but I knew that, that I was have more chances and I preferred Brighton and Kemp Town. Work took me back to Brighton and Kemp Town. My house was in Brighton and Kemp Town. And so it all fitted together. And I think it is important you have MPs 
that have connections with the local area, that they live there, that they grew up there, that they were born there, that they work there. It doesn't have to be all of them, but it has to be a combination of those things. Um, and uh, that's what I was, and uh, hopefully I represent that kind of, I represent some of that diversity that we have in Kemp Town. Uh, and, and I love representing the, what has been for the last 30 years, the main gay LGBT area of the city. It's not always been the case. When my parents first lived in Middle Street uh, um, in the 60s and 70s, um, it was, of course, uh, that area of town where Dr. Brighton's was, was the, um, uh, what, what was some of the area where uh, the, the gay bars were. But they shifted in about 80, the 80s. And since then, um, solidly, Kemp Town has been the home of Brighton's LGBT community. And if you don't mind me asking, what was it like coming out? I'm sure it still has its difficulties, but is being an openly gay MP now easier than it would have been previously? I mean, coming out more generally, I think, was easier because, of course, Sussex and Brighton are quite um, open places. So I think that that uh, was uh, easier. And I think that um, being elected as a gay MP was easy and is generally easy now. I, I, in my selection, I had one person saying, well, we've not... They'll not have a problem with your sexuality, Lloyd, but they might have a problem with your ginger. And they were serious. Um, and I've had more abuse about being ginger than I have be, about being gay um, uh, in, in, in the area. So I think that in Brighton and in parts of Sussex, we have moved on from those issues. Um, of course, there are things that are still kind of culture wars that right-wing people try to whip up and try to make a thing of, just like they tried to do in the, uh, in the 80s. And they will always try and do that. People who have malign intention will always try and do that and bring other people along on board and, and create fear. But broadly, I think it's, it is a non-issue in terms of being gay um, and being a politician. The question is, do you use your experience to help inform your politics? Or do you ignore or deny or are you shameful of your experiences to help inform your politics? Now, I'm not a perfect person and I will have made many mistakes that we all will have. But I believe that you, I believe you use those experiences of things you've done, people you've loved, um, uh, sexuality, uh, jobs, experiences, all those things and, and race. And you, uh, you use that as, your MP, as an MP to help advocate and to have compassion and to understand and hopefully that's what I do. Some other people who might be LGBT or gay might take a different view and they might say, well, they want to ignore it because it shouldn't be relevant. That's fine. But the kind of MP that I am, I like to be informed by my experiences and being gay is one of the experiences that I have in life. And so it informs my politics. If you don't mind me asking again, one of those experiences that you have, I think it's 2018, you became the first ever MP to disclose your HIV status in mm -hmm. the House itself. Why did you feel it was important to do that at the time? Well, I say in the speech there are three reasons why I did that. One reason was, on a personal reason, it just is so much easier if everyone knows. You know, you're not worried about people outing you or exposing you or, or the sun suddenly ringing you up on a Saturday morning saying that the next day they're going to put an expose on all that which is a worry. And, and actually, it's dangerous. If you keep secrets like that, you're open to bribery, you're open to threats. And, and that's very dangerous. And we've seen that with the Conservative Party, actually, some of the stuff coming out at the moment, uh, that the whips have been bribing, uh, not bribing, but um, uh, uh, trying to make threats 
and blackmail some of their own MPs. So it was important to make sure that no one had anything over me. The only people that should have something over me are the people of Kemp Town on election day. And then I should be free to represent them and have no other interest kind of threatening me. So that was important there. Um, and actually, it's just so much easier if you don't have to disclose it all the time. But the other points were for political reasons, because we now have a situation in this country that if you take your medication like I do every day, I take one pill a day, I am undetectable. And if they do a test of my blood, they can't detect the HIV. That means I can't pass it on. If I'm undetectable and can't pass it on, that means there's no more transmissions from me and from other people who are on the medication. And so that leads to a stage where in across the country, if we get everyone on medication, we could eradicate this disease. And there is now a target, but at the time, the government hadn't agreed a target. So we were pushing them to agree the target that by 2030, we look at moving to eradicating new transmissions. Now it can happen. In Brighton alone, in Brighton and Hove in the last year, uh, just gone, we had a dozen or so people who were diagnosed as HIV positive. But the vast majority of them were people who had had it for a long time and didn't know. And in all that time, they could have been passing it on to people. There were only two or three newly infected people in the whole of Brighton and Hove, and we have a high amount of um, uh, HIV positive people. And all of them were people that caught it from someone who was then later diagnosed as a late diagnosee. Does that make sense? So if we tackle those things, we could drive that number three next year down to two. And we could drive that two number down to one the year after. And if we tackle it well enough, we could drive it down to zero. And that's rather remarkable. It would be the first time in human history we have eradicated the disease. And that is in 30 years of this disease, 40 years now. This would be absolutely remarkable and amazing and uh, of human history. But it looked like the government was going to miss that hurdle and kind of, you know, kind of say, oh, well, we've come far enough, let's focus on something else. So I, I, I talked about my personal experiences to push this government to do something better for everyone and to do something that hopefully will be a blueprint for how every country in the world can then eradicate HIV and we can you know, eradicate this disease globally. And that's what I think that would be. A rather remarkable thing is we've done and the government have now accepted it and we have a road map to do it. You said at the end of that speech, I think that it's better to live in knowledge than die in fear. And I think that's an extremely powerful message. But do you think disease is still misunderstood by some people? Well, of course it is misunderstood by some people. Some of that is internal fear. People are afraid of talking about it themselves. People are afraid of being honest about it themselves. People limit what they do themselves around it because they are scared. And, and so that is important. But it is also important to tackle this testing. And so if you get tested, the reason we know a lot of people don't get tested is because they are fearful of the result. But if you live in fear and therefore don't get tested, you will die. And you will not only die yourself, but you will could. You could cause others to suffer. And so you live in knowledge. If you know what your status is, you will live, but you will help other people live as well. And it is a peace of mind and you can move on. And that is really important to get across. I mean, that's why we've got some great things happening in Bratton Hope. Martin Peter Foundation do some really good work about this. You've got the new HIV testing and sexual health testing stations at the library, at Prowler. So they're going to be rolled out. There's one of the, the, the Black and Asian Minority Centre near the train station where you can go for free anonymously. Just use the vending machine, get your test kit and you can get a test result. There for HIV, 
sent back to all the other issues as well. So that we've really tried to pioneer things in the city for access, to destigmatize it as well, to say it's normal for people to get tested. And that huge bus that drives around, I don't know if you've seen it in Brighton, uh, which says, you know, kind of HIV is not scary anymore. We don't want people to be getting it, but it's not scary if you do. And what's more important is you get tested. And that is the message we need to keep getting out because people do report things of HIV stigma and direct discrimination on occasions. And we continue needing to fight that. For example, there are still some old laws that were only lifted uh, this year around preventing people serving in the military with HIV, even though we now know that they can't pass on that. It's only lifted this year. So we are still working through that legal, legislative and moral backlash from the early years. And just a last question on, on this topic anyway. What was it like for you to find out at the time? I know it was some time ago, I think. And does being HIV positive still affect your life at all now? Or is it just a case of that one pill every day and get on with things? Well, everything affects your mentality to some extent. So you are not immune to the experiences that you have gone through. So, of course, that still affects my life day to day now. And, of course, taking the pill and going and get tested to make sure that it still remains all good is something that affects day to day. If you are dating starting new relationships, all those things can then be brought up. Applying for jobs, having to apply for visas, sometimes those things can be barriers still today. Not perfect. But when I found out, not only did I want it to be a horrible joke, you know, you're desperate for it to be anything else, like kind of a dream. You hope that you're just going to be woken up or sucked up through the roof and suddenly in another room or something like that, and someone will say, oh, gotcha, surprise. You wish for that initially, and it is traumatic. But in the back of your mind, you know it's true and you know it's real. And at that time, we didn't even, we had only one pill that you could give that was one a day. And we didn't issue that to people immediately. Now we issue it to people immediately because we know the pill doesn't harm you, but it can save you. When I first was diagnosed, you had to be under 200 CD4 count, which is your white blood cell count, in your blood, meaning that you had effectively early start of AIDS. Um, and you could start getting illnesses that were um, caused by the HIV. And then you started the drugs to stop you deteriorating further. Now it's totally different. Now it's immediately, so there's never any uh, deterioration, and therefore people can live much more healthily. So it, it was much more scary then. It's much less scary now, and that's just in 10 years. Moving on, I have to ask about Revenge Nightclub as well. You mentioned it recently in the Commons on the topic of COVID. But is that still a place that you frequent? It does fall under the Kemp Town area. I, I try and go to all of the bars and clubs in Brighton, Kemp Town from time to time. I don't get around all of them and I have my favourites. Probably in the last year I've been to Revenge Tour three times. Probably go to Legends just as many times, if not more. You see all variety of peoples there. Last time I was in Legends, I bumped into the chairman of the Conservative Party, the local vicar, a local Labour councillor, some a local judge. Um, uh, and we all had drinks and chatted. And we hadn't planned all to be together. We were just something to so you meet from all walks of life, as well as constituents from White Talk or from Muslim Bevan Dean, all coming in to use those facilities. Uh, and I think that's great. It would be amiss of me to say that I had a favourite. It's like a parent uh, that has children. Uh, you never say which one's your favourite because the others would get jealous or maybe be relieved. You previously suggested that Sussex could or should have its own parliament. I'm just interested, is that something that you still think would be a good idea? Uh, well, I believe very much that we need to reform the Union of the United Kingdom so it can last. Every country has to reshape itself every hundred years. 
always in history. If any country stays still, they disband and they fall apart. So you need to be dynamic. And the previous hundred years beforehand was all about bringing things together, centralizing things. Actually, we lost powers from Sussex and boroughs and communities. We lost powers in our area. We lost courts and, um, and all that stuff. You know, we, we've seen the closure of, of these things across the county. And I think if we are to keep the union together, we also need to rethink about how England looks in that picture. Because you cannot have an unequal union where you have a country that is 80% of the population and the wealth and the land and a large part of the landmass. It doesn't work. But you could have, going back to a longer history, rather than just thinking about a history of 100 years, let's think a history of 1,000 years, when Sussex was an independent nation, county and kingdom of Sussex. Hastings joined slightly later. And then we joined a federation of kingdoms under the kingdom of Wessex. And Wessex together formed with Northumberland which was a client state of Denmark. You know, so we have a long patchwork history in this country. So rather than trying to look forward, but also consider how that history is important to us, there is an identity in Sussex, I think, that still remains. People move to the area because they like Sussex. And that reinforces the identity, actually. People moving into the area doesn't dilute identity, it reinforces it because people have chosen to live somewhere where they like those things that happen in Brighton and Sussex and the free thinking uh, that you have in Lewis or the, the Jack in the Green and the, uh, uh, and the alternative arts in Hastings or, or whatever. You know, that's why people move here. So it reinforces your local culture. And I think that if we are to reconnect politics with people, it must be connected to culture and sports and community. It goes back to the very reason I got involved in politics, wasn't it? It's about community. It's about how do we make it better for ourselves um, and the people around us and our neighbours. And that's where you start. And I think if we are to do that, we need to have proper uh, arrangements in Sussex. Now, we already elect a police crime commissioner for Sussex, covers the whole of Sussex police. It makes no sense to me to have a both East and West Sussex County Council there. I mean, East Sussex County Council, I think, is brutal and nasty for the people in East Sussex, people particularly in Peacehaven. It's, it does very horrible things to them. It's kind of taken away their services. It's, it's smashed up some of their facilities quite physically, you know, kind of smashing up a swimming pool, threatening to shut down libraries and move them into broom cupboards, do things that really they don't deserve. I think we should abolish that county. You could have a wider strategic body of the Sussex Parliament that we all elect, and you could have then proper districts and local areas and towns and boroughs who really decide the local area. I think it would be better for us locally, but it also would rebalance the union because Sussex would be then an equal part like London and like Wales and like and all those equal parts together would come together in an equal Commonwealth. And together we would be a strong Commonwealth Union all under one United Kingdom. I think that could be a future because at the moment, if we continue the direction we are, Scotland and Northern Ireland will not be with us in the next 100 years. If we want to be together, if we want to cooperate together, then we need to change ourselves. You can never change other people. You have to change yourself first. And that's my mantra in lots of the politics that I do. I don't bemoan when other people do horrible things to us. It's not nice. But what you do is you change how you react. You change yourself so that you are more resilient, so that you are more cooperative, so that they then don't do those things again or they work with you in the future. And that's what I think we need to do from the union. On a different topic, how has working throughout COVID been for you? It's been very strange. I mean, MPs have been able to come in and up to London when they've needed to, although we've done a lot from home. 
although voting now has to be done in person. But I think that lots of people have suffered far more than I have. People who actually needed to continue to work in person through the pandemic, but also people who had to work at home in overcrowded accommodation. And it was clearly a pandemic that if you were well off, you did well out of. And if you were not, you didn't. And you see that with the cost of living crisis as well. You know, inflation is only at 5% average. But if you just look at the supermarket at the moment, in the last five years, the price of rice, the cheapest rice that you get in the supermarket, has more than doubled. Whereas the price of a ready meal, you know, one of those luxury £15 for an all-in dinner and a bottle of wine, it's still £15. It hasn't changed at all. So if previously you were able to afford those things, that's fine. Your cost of living changed very little. But if you are the poorest in our society, buying the cheap rice to feed a big family, your costs have more than doubled. Um, and so I think that uh, um, there, there has been some real, and that's the same with COVID, some real difficulties for some people who are the poorest in our society. And we have not tackled those issues properly. As the MP, I need to be aware of that all the time. My privileged position is not here just to sit on my laurels. My privileged position here is to speak up for them. And that's been harder during the pandemic because you've been behind a screen. You can't grab a minister and persuade them. You can't express yourself as easily as you can in the chamber. So those things are important we return back to. Although I do wish we would incorporate some modern innovations like voting rather than walking through a door. But that's another issue entirely. And it'd, be, it'd be silly of me not to ask you about the current political situation. I know you've touched on it a little bit already, but what is your take on, on everything that's going on at the moment? And I should point out for the people listening that at the time of recording this, the infamous Sue Gray report isn't completed yet. But what is your take on everything? Well, Sue Gray is meant to present a report. I sit on the Constitutional Affairs Committee that looks at all these issues. The government have refused for the last year to allow Sue Gray to come to our committee to talk about these issues and these other corruption scandals that like we had the Grenstel, etc. The government, I, I, I'm not convinced, are good players here. I don't think Boris Johnson will be the Prime Minister at the next election. I could be wrong, but I really think his numbers are up. The question for the Conservatives is when do they get rid of him, not if they get rid of him, and they will want to do it in their time, it's best for them, so that when they next go to the election, they do better. I want them to do it at a time that is best for the country, that is, and now and that we have an election early so that the country can be reset from this corrupt mess that the Conservatives have got us in. You know, kind of they were found guilty of legal contracts only last week uh, during COVID. They've, we've seen billions of pounds fortunately spent, being found out now. I mean, they seem to be partying more than they were working. And the amount of parties that have come out, you kind of wonder, the question is not for Sue. I mean, I feel sorry for poor old Sue Gray. The question is not... What days do you investigate? It's what days don't you investigate? Nothing wrong with a, with a drinker um, at the desk if you've got a long night. You know, nothing wrong with, with cracking open a beer if you've got an all-night session. But popping around to the supermarket with your trolley clinking and your suitcase clinking of booze and having parties outside, that seemed to me beyond the pale. And I think most of the public thought that was beyond the pale as well. A bit of a random question. Were there any politicians from time gone by who you especially admire or, or looked up to when you're younger or even now? Oh, well, that is a good question, isn't it? I mean, I always thought that Harold Wilson was someone to uh, look up to. He's an historic figure rather than a current figure uh, and not someone I can personally remember, but actually someone who captured a moment in this country as we were changing. Those 60s were a moment of great social change. 
and he encapsulated a lot of that, bringing people who were traditionalists along with an idea of modernization that was about building our country up, that white heat of technology for new Britain going forward. So, so I always thought that he, and of course, he was one of the um, most successful in terms of number of elections and time as leader, leader of the, of, of the Labour Party that we've had. So, so that's someone that I would look up to. But there are many. I'm not one to take idols, however. There is a danger of thinking anyone is perfect. Just before we move on to the final bit of uh, the episode, as I think all Brightonians, I feel it'd be rude not to ask about Pride. And after all the cancellations and, and everything we've had because of COVID, is that something that you look forward to or are looking forward to? I do look forward to it. My view is that Brighton is a place for fun, what it was created for. I mean, apart from the Helmstone or the village, but Brighton was created because people wanted to come to the sea and have fun, either bathing or the prince built his palace. It was a fun palace. That was the whole point of the palace. The palace was, was to be a place of fun, horse racing, fine wine and good food, and also, you know, kind of, Fine women, you know, kind of was was his uh, appreciation of Sussex. Well, I think that needs to be the same. We we rely on that, and pride is a moment where we we can celebrate a more modern history of the city, uh, uh, which is about sexual liberation and freedom, as well as celebrate doing it in a fun way and saying we need still more to do. Of course, it is political but it must also be fun. The whole point of why Pride's cut through is that they weren't just a protest where you walk down the street with a banner shouting. They were a protest where you walk down the street with glitter playing dance music. You know, kind of, that is the point of it. And I think that we are sorely missing some of that fun in our politics as well as our community. So I'm looking forward to Pride coming back. I'm hoping that Kemp Town Carnival, although I'm here it might be called Brighton Carnival, will return as well. And we will see some great innovations um, in terms of uh, the Brighton Festival. I'm looking forward to all of them, but I think Pride will be the highlight. And I want to see Pride in all its aspects, you know, the messy aspect, the drunken fun aspect, the political aspect, the debauchery, all of it is important. And people who try and sanitise one part of another, I think are party killers. I know you said you didn't like to choose favourites or anything, but for the final part of each episode, we ask each guest their, their favourite things, places, shops, etc. in Sussex. If you were going for a coffee and a cake with a friend from out of town, where would you take them? I probably, there, there's some beautiful little places in St. James's Street. There is a lovely little cake place. I'm thinking about cakes, that's what, that's what um, struck my mind. Just off St. James's Street, actually, which is on Madeira Place, Tea Room Lemon. I do like the little cakes, beautifully um, succulent cakes that they do there, lemon drizzle cake and things like this, and nice tea. And of course, if you want then an ice cream, you can pop next door uh, to the beautiful ice cream shop on the corner. The second question is, what is the best shop in Sussex? Do you know, the shop that I love the most um, is a shop that is a picture on some of my campaign material. There's a picture of me resting up against it. It is called Barbary Lane, just up the top of uh, on St George's Road in Kemptown. It is a perfect little party present shop, which has lots of uh, little glittery things 
funny old socks, masks, nice handbags, dresses, but also has ties and handkerchiefs. And whenever I want to go to a party and I have to dress up in a colour theme or something like this, I can go in there and I can say, oh, well, I need something like this. And they open up their dressing up box and they always have something. And if I go in there and say, I need a present, which needs to be a beautiful handbag for someone, or I need a lovely brooch, they always have something there. It's a tiny little shop, but it, it seems to be it's like a treasure chest of things to buy. Whether it be for a concert or comedy or theatre, have you got a favourite venue around? Oh, a favourite venue? Because I think it depends on where you go. I'm looking forward to seeing the Corn Exchange once it is open. And I've had a few tours around there. I mean, I love going to the Brighton Dark And of course, some of our facilities also in, in Kemp Town are also lovely, whether it's the Spire or, or some of the churches. But there is something about the Corn Exchange and the Dome that when it's finished being refurbished, I'm really, really looking forward to. Uh, it is the first place that I sang publicly when I was a child um, on International Cooperative Day um, in the Corn Exchange. And we went out into the Pavilion Gardens and played games and uh, did a little, uh, did some fun activities. And so it will take me back. Uh, and the acoustics and the refurbishment of that, I think, will be really exciting. If you're looking to escape the city, what's your favourite outdoors place to visit? There were two places that I always enjoy. One is Cookmere. I like going down there. You hire one of the canoes or kayaks. You can do some beautiful kayaking up and down the Cookmere um, and even into the sea. But if I was more leisurely, if you go up to Barkham Mills, and there you can have a lovely pub lunch and then get into a rowing boat and uh, row for a bit. And it is a lovely thing to do in a summer's afternoon. And there is nothing better than a good Sussex pub with then the ability to either do some rowing, kayaking, or even, if you are lucky, some swimming, um, either in the sea or down one of our beautiful rivers. Uh, we just need to hope that southern water aren't polluting them at the time. And lastly, whether it's for a drink or a sit-down meal, have you got a favourite bar, pub, restaurant in Sussex? Well, I like the Sunday lunches at the Thomas Kemp, and I do find that then very enjoyable. But there are so many lovely little bars, pubs and restaurants around. For breakfast, I love that there is a little, um, I think it's called Cozy's Cafe, just on Upper St James's Street which I do like to go in beautiful, freshly squeezed orange juice and then always a nice breakfast. You can have a full English. But I usually actually go for the um, avocado and salmon, um, but I do sometimes have a sneaky bit of bacon on the side. And lastly, just looking ahead, are there any projects or policies that you're especially pushing for? And also, what, what do you want your legacy to be as a, as a politician? I know you've still got plenty of time left. Well, I hope that I've got plenty of time left. The thing that I'm really working on at the moment is housing issues. And uh, I'm really concerned about these evictions that happen, uh, rents that are zoomed up too quickly, and the inability for people to be able to live in a secure accommodation. And that effect it has on their lives, on families, on schooling, on, on young people being able to settle and set up a family and their ability to do that. And it is almost impossible to do that if you are in insecure accommodation, which a lot of our rental sector is at the moment. So I'm pushing hard 
for the government to bring forward a bill on that. They promised it three years ago, still not yet seen it. So we're going to push some more on that. If my legacy is that people live in more secure accommodation by the end of me being a parliamentarian, then I will be a happy man. Fantastic. Well, that's all we've got time for, Lloyd. But thank you so much for coming on and, and being so open and sharing your story. It's been It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and thank you to Lloyd for being so open and honest. Be sure to keep an eye out for our next episode. But until then, if you know somebody from Sussex who you think has an interesting story to tell, then let us know. You can tweet us your guest suggestions at Brighton Argus on Twitter or directly to me at Chris underscore Fuller 11 and use the hashtag The Argus Podcast. And make sure to keep up to date with all the latest news from around Sussex on our website, theargus.co.uk. Until next time. <laughs>